Hey Anthem, I hope you are enjoying our summer Sabbath. I hope whatever it is you're doing with these few weeks off our normal rhythms as a church with our house churches and our Sunday gatherings, I hope you are enjoying some rest. You're at the beach, you're at the park, you're traveling, you're hanging with family. Whatever it is that you're doing over the month of July, I hope that God is meeting with you in some really profound and unique ways as we just intentionally make space from our working and our striving, but also make space to hear from Him and meet with Him in really unique ways. So I am praying for you over this time, but what we are doing together as a church community is we're actually going to continue moving through um, our time in the Minor Prophets. We're calling it the 12, Faithfulness to a Faithful God in Faithless Times. And it has been such a sweet time already. Over the summer, we're taking one prophet per week. So there's 12 Minor Prophets. We're doing this over 12 weeks, including our Summer Sabbath weeks. And we're just looking at one prophet and seeing how they speak to that idea of being faithful to a faithful God in our current faithless times. And in that phrase is a couple of key ideas. And it's, and it's set up against the backdrop of these two diametrically opposed realities. One, that we have an eternally faithful God who has been throughout the story of humanity pursuing his people, being committed and faithful to his people, including the Israelites in the Old Testament to whom the minor prophets were writing to, but also including you and me, followers of Jesus today. But that's also sort of set in contrast with the times that we live in, that there will be nations, there will be times, there will be cultures and places that will set themselves against God knowingly or unknowingly. And it's in that context that we find ourselves kind of wedged between these new realities, that the world we live in will not be faithful to the one true God of the Bible, but we as followers of Jesus are called to be faithful to a God who's been eternally faithful to us. And uh, in those competing wills, the call of the Jesus follower is faithfulness. Faithfulness, as we've said over and over again as we speak about our vision and mission at a church, as a church is faithfulness in the face of cultural coercion. That, that is building our resiliency as disciples. That in the midst of a culture that is trying to get you to live one way or another, we are faithful to Jesus even when it's unpopular even when it costs us something, even if it's what our friends and family are not actively doing either. And it is part of our vision as a church, and I've so loved our time in the Minor Prophets. But we have to ask this question, what does faithfulness to Jesus mean? What does fidelity to Jesus and His way and Scripture mean in our time and our place? What does it actually look like? Right? It can look like a whole lot of different things. We see a lot of different Christians living the way of Jesus a lot of different ways, and so how do we faithfully interpret what living faithfully in our time means for us today. But maybe, why is it so hard? <laughs> right? Why is this such a struggle for us? And these are the questions that we're seeking to answer in our time through the Minor Prophets, an unlikely and more often than not skipped over section of Scripture that it actually has profound implications for how we follow Jesus today. But what's also been so awesome so far as we've been moving through this series is you haven't been hearing from me that much, which, which I, don't, I don't know about you. It's kind of great for me to hear from other people. And I actually believe it's really important for our church to hear from other voices. So you're hearing from me over our summer Sabbath because I can pop up here at HQ, record a couple of messages while we're out. But when we're together on those Sunday gatherings, we have apprentice teachers that are tackling the minor prophets, which is just absolutely incredible. We've had four already so far. We've had Sherry take us to the book of Joel. We had Matt working through Jonah 
Jonah, and then we had Jason and Marilyn teaming up to work through the book of Micah. And when we come back on July 15th, we'll continue through our Apprentice Teacher Summer, which I'm incredibly excited about. But for these two weeks while we're off, I'm, I'm going to be tackling two prophets with you. And the one we're looking at today is Amos. The prophet Amos. So if you have your Bible, Bible app, or in a place where you can turn there or click there or type it in, please go over to the book of Amos with me. And while you're going there, I want to ask you a question. Maybe a question to just let simmer throughout our time in Amos today. What is true worship? What is true worship? What does God ask of us? As we think about that question, we may think of some different key moments in Scripture. We might think of the Cain and Abel moment from Genesis, where Cain and Abel both bring different sort of worship to God, and God says one is good and one is not good. And we think of maybe some of the moments with the prophets, some of the idol worship throughout the Old Testament. We might think of even Paul's words to the Romans. It's the first one that came to my mind. It may be the first one that came to your mind. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Paul says, in light of God's mercies, our spiritual worship is presenting our whole bodies, our whole selves, right? And so even if we somehow get past the worship is more than music on a Sunday kind of thing, which it is, music on Sunday is absolutely great. We see it all throughout scripture. When the people of God gather, they do it around song and it's beautiful, but it's more than that. And so we think of Paul's words that it's somehow we present our whole bodies, our whole selves as a spiritual act of worship. And that sounds great. And we're like, yes, that sounds, that sounds amazing. But what does that actually mean? <laughs> What does that look like? What do we do? Does that mean we just sing all day? Does that mean we just sing at work? Does that mean we have to have like worship music on in the background while we're doing other things at home? What does that actually look like? Is it not just singing with our mouths, but do we have to raise our hands too? Now, I suspect you're tracking with me that there's something more that's happening in that little line from Paul. And this question, what does true worship look like is at the heart of our prophet Amos that we're going to be looking at today. So I hope you're in Amos, and we'll start in chapter 1, verse 1. This, and a lot of these minor prophets, the very first verse of the very first chapter is a sort of orienting verse. It's where are we? What's happening right now? Who is this guy? What's the scenario? And so let's just start right there. In verse 1, it says, The words of Amos, who's among the shepherds of Tekoa, which is an interesting little town that's set at the uh, border, uh, kind of right between the border of the northern and the southern kingdom. And there's some fascinating history of Tekoa that you can read about, and I believe it's the book of 2 Kings. Go check that out on your own time. But Tekoa was sort of this little, I don't know, mountainy agricultural region set between the two kingdoms of Israel, the kingdom in the north and the kingdom in the south. They were already split at this point, and so this little town right here is where Amos lives. And what we see is he's a farmer, right? And so we see the words of the Lord, which he saw concerning Israel. That's the northern kingdom. So in the prophets, when we see Judah, that's the southern kingdom. Israel, it's the northern kingdom. Israel in the day of Uzziah, king of Judah in the south, and Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So we have some chronological orienting material here. We see where Amos is in this little town. And what we'll find out a little bit later is that Amos is a prophet farmer. He's a farmer prophet. And he's in this town, Tekoa, that is on the border. And he's 
kind of functioning as a farmer and a prophet during the reign of King Uzziah in the south and King Jeroboam II in the north, who, if you excuse my language, sucked. Just, he was awful king, real, real bad, right? Like most all of the kings in the north were terrible, terrible, terrible kings. But he kind of is working in the intersection of these two kings. But what happens is during this time, both kingdoms were sort of in a similar spot. They were enjoying some political stability, uh, which in turn brought some prosperity. So there was some uh, sort of financial prosperity, cultural prosperity that was happening at the time. But it was also a time of idolatry, of extravagance, and no surprise, corruption. Whenever there seems to be financial prosperity, there also seems to come corruption, which means those who had were abusing those who had not. The rich and the powerful were oppressing the poor. And so what happens here is in the very first verse, we're told that Amos sort of focuses attention. This is what's happening in both kingdoms. This is when and where he's at. And the Lord gives him direction to go prophesy and call to account the northern kingdom, particularly King Jeroboam II in the north. This is what he is tasked to do. So he leaves his home and he goes up to the northern kingdom. He goes to this place called Bethel and he he starts like firing these prophecies off and he starts firing off judgment and warnings and he's holding them to account for what is happening at the time. So he focuses in on the northern kingdom and he preaches against King Jeroboam and the northern kingdom and all of their excesses and all their corruption. And while they've had external success, politically, militarily, financially, they're worshiping all these other gods. And so they're not actually trusting Yahweh and thus are spiritually bankrupt. And not only that, they've ignored their covenant with Yahweh by worshiping other gods. And they've stooped morally to be just like all the other nations around them. There's nothing that distinctively makes them different than all the other nations around them. And so like most of the prophets that we've seen so far, there's these general accusations of covenant violations with Yahweh, right? They entered into this covenant with God and they're violating the covenant. And so the prophets are there to call them to account. But in each prophet, there's a specific bent here. There's a specific ax they have to grind or a specific calling from God to address maybe particular sins in a particular way. And God has ordained Amos to call out the northern kingdom. And so if you were to see my notes right now, you would know this section of my talk is titled, Why Israel Sucks This Time, which is just kind of a recurring refrain throughout the the prophets. Right there, there's general covenant violations, but there's also some specifics that every prophet is calling them to account to. And most of Amos is actually judgment. Nine chapters, and most of it is wildly disturbing and discouraging if you're on the receiving end of Amos's proclamations. So why? Why is it that bad? Why aren't there more glimmers of hope throughout? Well, I think it's because things have just gotten that bad. Like things have gotten so bad to where there's little shreds of hope left. And Amos is broken up into a couple of different sections, but by and large, chapters one through nine is just judgment after judgment. Some of it's poetic, some of it's direct message from God, some of it is Amos' commentary on it. But in the first couple of chapters, we see actually Amos talking to Israel and the surrounding nations. And literarily, what's happening here is really fascinating and beautiful. The image here is that Amos is kind of calling out the surrounding nations of Israel. It's sort of like a circle. 
And he's calling out going from far away to closer to Israel. And it's, and it's painting this picture like a bullseye almost. He's calling out all these other nations. And then he finally gets closer and closer to Israel. Now, don't get me wrong. Israel's neighbors were awful as well. Right? It's hard to find a good country around this time in world history and civilization. They are truly despicable. But they're almost an Amos a sideshow to how corrupt Israel had become. And so when Amos finally gets to Israel in chapter 1 and starts laying out accusations against them, they're longer and they're more intense. And the basic gist of his accusations is they're ignoring the poor among them. They're allowing injustice to be done. And the way that injustice is looking is they're letting those who don't have financial means go into indentured servitude. And they're allowing it to happen. While the rich get richer, the poor are getting poorer and are allowing all these terrible and unjust things to happen to the economically disadvantaged. And Amos is calling them out for basically being the same as all the other nations around them, but worse, being the same as Egypt. He's like, isn't this how you were treated when you were in Egypt? You had less and less freedom, less and less rights. You eventually became slaves. And now you, the rich, the powerful, the religious elite, are doing the same thing to the poor among you, your own brothers and sisters. You are acting just like Egypt. And God's saying, didn't I already save you out of Egypt? Didn't I already save you from this kind of slavery and this oppression? And now you're repeating these patterns and actions to your own people? And in chapter 3, we see more poems and messages explicitly directed to Israel and her leaders. And in Amos chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Amos says, Hear the words that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. Right? And so there's this callback. Remember where you came from. Remember what God has done for you. In verse 2, you only have known all the families of the earth, therefore... I will punish you for all your iniquities. And what God is basically saying here is, I chose you. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I rescued you from slavery and oppression. And since you're acting just like the people I've rescued you from, I'm going to punish you just like I punished them. But with all this discouraging kind of judgment things happening here in Amos, in chapter 5, we see some key moments some particularly searing and informative moments from the prophet Amos. So in chapter 5, verse 4 and verse 14, we kind of see these pairings here and these kind of glimmers of hope and call to live differently. In verse 4, for thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. So it's not just you're done for, you're totally finished, The Assyrians who are coming in about 40 years, they're going to come, they're going to take you over, you're done, that's it. I'm going to wipe you off the map. But he says, seek me and live. And this is both a way out, but also a way to live here and now. But in verse verse 14, we have kind of a mirror of that, where he says, seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. So seek me and live. And do good, not evil, and I will actually be with you. So live, and I will be with you if you seek me and do good. Now, this is under the context of Israel being totally inundated with idol worship to the hilt. And these idols were representing real gods of the time, real spiritual forces that were at work in the other nations. Now, here's what's fascinating about all those other gods. 
They were very, very different than Yahweh. Right, so you had maybe a god of weather, a god of sex, a god of war, a god of whatever. And these gods are all incredibly self-interested. And they want you to sacrifice this, sacrifice that, live a certain way, live a certain way. But it was to their gain and benefit, and maybe to your personal gain, but certainly not to the gain and benefit of the community around you. These gods were selfish, they were vindictive, they were angry, they were demanding of sacrifice, and did not care how you treated other people. And one of the things that set Yahweh uh, apart from all of the other gods, made up or real, that people worshipped after the time, was the sense that worship of Yahweh was not just you and him, but it had implications for everybody else that you lived with. It transformed all your other relationships in life. So worship to Yahweh is not just a vertical thing, but it's a horizontal thing as well. The most important relationship transforms and affects all your other relationships in life. And in starting in verse 18, in Amos chapter 5, we see what is maybe the crux of the entire book that is happening right here. And in chapter 5, starting at verse 18, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, right? He's speaking to the religious elite who kind of self-proclaim they want God to come. They want the day of the Lord. They want final restoration. They want judgment for Israel's enemies, etc., etc. He says, woe to you people who say you actually want that. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned on his, against his wall and a serpent bit him. He's saying, be careful what you wish for. This may not be as good as you think it is. In verse 20, it's not the day of the Lord, it's not the day of the Lord, darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it. I hate, I despise your feasts. This is Amos quoting God now. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings. I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps, I will not listen. A robust and searing indictment of their spiritual hypocrisy. God says, You who say you're actually looking forward to the day of the Lord, be careful what you wish for, because I'm not going to accept any of the the worship that you're giving me now. Your sacrifices, your offerings, your songs, your melodies, I'm not going to accept any of that. I do not want your fake worship. And Amos is exposing the religious hypocrisy, particularly among the leaders and the wealthy, because they're attending all these religious ceremonies and activities while neglecting the poor among them, which is a clear violation of the covenant they made with Yahweh. But anger, judgment is never Yahweh's final word. It's never God's last moment. Amos gives them a way they ought to worship. He says, this is not the kind of worship that will be acceptable to God. This is the kind of worship that will be acceptable to God. In Amos 5 verse 24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amos highlights two particularly important words, not only in the prophets, but the entire story of God. Justice and righteousness. He says, let justice roll down like rivers and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
Righteousness and justice are two words that you'll see throughout the Minor Prophets and throughout the entire story of God as sort of a two-word encapsulation of how those who follow God ought to live on this earth. Righteous and justice. Righteousness and justice. Righteousness is this idea of right and equitable relationships, no matter the socio or economic differences between people. That there's a sense of shalom, of harmony, that no one's disadvantaging one another to get ahead. If I can be real, it's very anti-capitalist in the true sense. It is not stomping on other people so you can get ahead or taking advantage of those who don't know better so you can gain more. The biblical idea of righteousness is equity. The biblical idea of righteousness is harmony in relationships, is that finances don't separate those. There are no haves and have-nots. And the pairing with justice gives us some concrete actions because justice is actually concrete things, concrete actions to correct injustice and create the conditions for righteousness. And so if righteousness is a state of being, justice are the things we do to achieve that state of being. If righteousness is sort of the homeostasis at which we are to live as followers of Jesus, justice are the actions that help get us to that point. And what Amos is saying is worshiping Yahweh is synonymous with doing justice and seeking righteousness. But because they have rejected Yahweh and failed to uphold the covenant, Yahweh will bring consequences. And we know the consequences that will happen here to the people of Israel in particular. In about 40 years, the Assyrians, the big, huge, neighboring superpower empire of their time, will come in and take over their whole country, will exile them, they'll put them in slavery, they'll decimate the cities. It will be truly awful. And so we know that will come to pass. And so we know they obviously did not take Amos' admonition and encouragements to change their ways at all. God gave them a generation to change their ways, and they didn't do it. And the Assyrians came, they conquered the northern kingdom, and that was that. And in chapter 7, 8, and 9, we have all these visions, all these visions from Amos about how the coming day of the Lord will look and feel when God finally comes to bring judgment and make things right. It is not a pretty picture. And it's all these visions unpacking what the religious people say they want, the day of the Lord, and what Amos is saying, I don't actually think you want what you want. And he goes on to describe what this will look like and all kinds of terrifying and specific imagery. But here's the truth. Judgment, consequences, destruction are never Yahweh's final word. There's always a remnant he will preserve. There is always mercy he will show. Anger, consequences, destruction, those are the final words for the other gods, but not for Yahweh. Yahweh is altogether different. And while I said this book is mostly judgment, and that's true, there is a bit of hope here. At the very end of chapter 9, the last five or so verses paint a different kind of picture, a bit of a glimmer of hope. Starting in verse 11, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. Edom is a really interesting one. We'll get to that in Obadiah. But just hold on to the fact that Amos is bringing to mind Edom, which is sort of the offshoot of Esau. 
one of the sons of Abraham. Okay. One of the sons of Isaac. We'll get there. Don't get too ahead of yourself. I'm already getting too ahead of myself. Edom, file that away for next time. Verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of that land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. All this imagery, of course, coming from the farmer prophet who uses imagery like garden and vineyards and planting to demonstrate God's commitment and faithfulness to his people. That the coming judgment, the coming consequences aren't the end game. God will actually rebuild and restore his people. Yahweh will restore and rebuild his family, his kingdom around his rule and his reign. And if we're looking back on Amos as a whole, we're confronted with a couple of different ideas. And the first idea is Yahweh's justice. If God is really good, he can't not do something about all the evil that is being committed, especially committed by his people who have entered into specific relationship and covenant with him. Yahweh's justice, while a hard pill to swallow for Israel, is necessary because if he is good, he will do something about all this evil. The second idea, though, is his mercy, Yahweh's mercy. His long-term purposes are not consequences, but restoration. As in, uh, if we think back to Exodus 34, we come back to every single week because all the prophets reference it quite frequently. Exodus 34, God reminds us that his compassion and mercy far outweigh the consequences of his justice. In verses 6 and 7, the Lord passed before Moses and said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So that's all talking about his love, his mercy, his compassion, his, his faithfulness to his people, while also reminding us of his justice, who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. But notice what we've been trying to highlight every time we go back to that verse, God's justice is there and it's necessary, but it's, it's lim- the consequences are limited. His faithfulness, his love, and his compassion is never ending. It's huge. Think of those consequences. By no means clearing the guilty to the third and the fourth generation versus love and compassion and mercy for thousands. This overwhelming picture of God's love is the end game, not the consequences of his justice. So Yahweh's justice and his mercy, and how do we today live under those realities? I think one right off the bat that I can think of is to learn from Israel's spiritual hypocrisy and their ensuing disaster. They were called out for worshiping God with their mouths, but not their hands. They were called out for all these sacrifices, all these ceremonies where they said they were praising Yahweh, but they were not, it wasn't transforming how they lived. So it's this idea of we're doing the church thing on Sundays and we're giving God the things we think he wants, but neglecting justice and righteousness in our time and our place. And we see from the story of Amos, it only leads to disaster. 
It's worship that God is not pleased with. Here's the thing. When we talk about worship that God is not pleased with, what is a trap, a rabbit hole, is to go and talk about contemporary or hymns. We We shouldn't be talking about, oh, speaking in tongues or prophecy or a more liturgical format. All that stuff is like totally secondary to the reality that if our vertical relationship with God does not transform our horizontal relationships with others, it is worship that God is not interested in. True worship of the true God is always marked by righteousness and justice and loving our neighbor. It's Paul. Present your whole bodies as sacrifice, not just songs on a Sunday. If our vertical relationship does not transform our horizontal ones, our vertical relationship is a myth. We're worshiping a God of our own making, not the God of the Bible. But here's the good news for us, you and me, is that we don't have to guess what worship to the true God looks like, and we don't have to do it alone. God is actually quite explicit in what, in what he's asking from us in our worship, and we do not have to do it alone because the love of the Father, the finished work of Jesus Christ, and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we can actually walk out true worship to God in justice and righteousness and loving our neighbors and loving our enemies. I believe we're living in a particular time and place where the world needs to see how our vertical relationship transforms our horizontal ones. I think the world is probably sick of seeing us talk about our vertical relationship with God and having it be totally disconnected from the horizontal relationships. Particularly in our time and our place, I think there is unique opportunity for the church to come back to true worship to say, because we follow Jesus, because we worship the true God, the God of the Bible, it shapes our world around us. It shapes how we care for people. It shapes how we love our neighbors and our enemies. It shapes how we bring justice and righteousness to the world around us. So my question for you is, what might God be calling you into? As you think about this, and chances are you might have to not have to dig hard. As we've been working through Amos, you may already have some ideas in your head of what God may be calling you into. Maybe some change in your life, some alterations to make. How might he be convicting you in the same way Amos was convicting the Israelites? What what is your spiritual hypocrisy? What is mine? These are questions we must ask ourselves. And what does it look like to live out justice and righteousness in your context and sphere? Wherever you're at, stay at home, mom, coder, developer, working remote at home, going into the office at your agency or your marketing firm, heading into class, out to beer or coffee with friends, coworkers, neighbors. What does justice and righteousness look like in your context? And as you ask these questions, we're not on our own. The Holy Spirit is here to help us truly worship the true God in spirit and in truth. What does it look like to have our entire lives be controlled by the love of Christ, as Paul would say it? Creating environments with our concrete actions for right, equitable relationship that display the love of the Father. What might that look like for you, for me, for our church community, for your family? I'm going to pray a blessing over you, but I'm also going to ask the Holy Spirit for creativity. 
I think what we don't need to dwell on is maybe all the ways we're getting this wrong or the church is getting it wrong. I don't think we have to think too hard about negative examples of spiritual hypocrisy. But I think where we need creativity from the Holy Spirit is how can we do this well in our time and our place? As a church community here in Ventura in 2022, me as an individual, me and my family, like how can we actually live out this kind of true worship that Amos lays out for us? So God, as we just take some moments of introspection, we just ask for your help. We do confess and repent of our own spiritual hypocrisy, where we have worshiped you with our lips, but not our wallets, not our hands, not our time. We repent of that. And Jesus, we ask through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us missional creativity. You would align us closer to your heart for our world around us. And that our worship of you would actually leak out into justice and righteousness and loving our neighbor and loving our enemies. Jesus, I pray that our worship to you becomes a tangible benefit to those around us. Help us to do that. This is maybe a really foreign idea to us. We've maybe been so convinced that worship is a totally solitary thing between me and you. And I pray that you'd remind us that true worship of you affects not only our family, our friends, our church, but the unbelievers around us. So help us as a community worship in a way that benefits the world around us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Love you, Anthem. We'll be back for the next installment in our series on the Minor Prophets called the Twelve. But until then, know that I love you and I'm praying for you. See you soon.